In the mid-90s, the writer Nick Flynn responded to a call for artists to make a short film. They wanted artists who had no background in film, people who had never held a video camera in their life. And Nick thought he had the perfect idea. It just seemed like a really fucked up idea. Like really like, and it just sort of made me a little giddy with how weird it was and kind of creepy. So I submitted this proposal. And at the time I only had a typewriter, which even at that time, it was in the mid nineties, like people had computers then. And I was a writer, so I probably should have had a computer. Nick typed up his proposal the old fashioned way. And it stood out. It jumped out of the pile and they held it up to the light and said, is that whiteout? Like, oh my God, this has whiteout on it. <laughs> they were like, this is a real crank with a, an idea that a crank would have. Let's see how he does. His proposal, to search for his mother's ex-boyfriends and ask all of them two questions. To track them down and to interview these 10 guys and just ask them two questions. How they had met my mother and how they found out she died. As soon as his proposal was accepted, Nick started to doubt the whole thing. They're married with kids now. Like, you know, I'm just going to show up at your door like, hi, I always remember me. I'm like an adult now. Remember me when I was six? I'm here to ask about my mother who killed herself. Nick was in his early 20s when his mother committed suicide. And at the time of his search, he was 35. Where were you in your life at 35 that that kind of quest was something you wanted to take on? I'd been sober and, and in like pretty intensive therapy for like at least five years at that point. I felt somehow like secure enough to do it. Was there anyone in your life that had said to you, this is a bad idea, Nick? <laughs> pretty much everyone at least raised an eyebrow at it. But a raised eyebrow to a writer is often the go-ahead that the idea just might have legs. The energy seemed so strange around it that that's what I trusted. Uh, that it just seemed like uncomfortable and weird and, and I, I really didn't know what, I would, what would come from it. And, and many strange things did come from it. I'm Terrence Mickey and welcome back to Memory Motel. Today's episode, Who Knew Her? Nick's father left his family when Nick was young. And afterward, he and his mother and brother moved around a lot. Uh, the first uh, four or five years you know, of my life, it was just a series of uh, places we lived. We lived like in a dozen places. Eventually, his mother saved enough money to buy a house. But even with the stability of a permanent home, Nick's youth was punctuated by a series of rotating men, his mother's boyfriends. They would appear and disappear, a steady stream of father figures he never forgot. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm looking for someone that I knew a long time ago. I'm not sure if it's him. Um, I can give you my name and number, and if he recognizes my name and number, he'll call me back. Every day I'd get in the phone, I'd go in information and say like, okay, who's next? Who's left on the list? And I'd find like two more. By finding these men, Nick hoped to be closer to his mother through their memories. It, of anyone that I know, I would wish that ghosts did exist. That I could actually, my mother's presence would be felt and, and palpable and somehow manifest around me. And 
I've just never felt that. She was always in a hurry getting a coffee to go or something like that, and she fascinated me. I didn't know her name, where she lived, I didn't know anything about her. And one day she popped into the restaurant while I was having lunch or breakfast or something and grabbed a coffee to go, headed out the door, got into the started the driveway in her valiant, and I just ran out the door and chased her down the street. And I caught up to her at a stop sign or something and jumped in the front seat and mm -hmm. said, I just want to know who you are. And just, you know, something like that, and that's how I met her. You know, meeting these guys, it was really interesting to see, like, their, like, generosity of spirit. I could actually talk to them as, like, someone, like, like what was it like for you? And, and it must have been hard to, that, the, you know, this woman that you had been with had committed suicide. You, you were dating a woman that had two kids. Uh, you know, why didn't it work out? Nick remembered his mother's ex-boyfriends as decent men, even the ones who had had trouble with the law. They were gentle for the most part. My mother didn't, wasn't with like physically abusive men, but there was like a criminality though. Not all of them, but there was a good percentage of them that were wild as fuck. Yet there was one ex-boyfriend who had become his stepfather and Nick hesitated before contacting him. He was a Vietnam vet and his name was John. And the last time I'd been with him, it had been really traumatic, kind of traumatic. Like he'd been just back from Vietnam, not in great shape, blew the windows out of our house. Uh, blood in the floor, like police, wild, you know, wild stuff. So I hadn't seen him since then. So I went up and I got in touch with him and it was, it was a little freaky because he answered the phone and he sounded like really high or something. He's like, oh yeah, hi, yeah, sure, come on up. And I was like, oh Jesus, like what is, what's with him? Like, and he said, I won't be there, I'll be coming back, I gotta pick my kids up, uh, but I'll be back. Just if you get there, just wait in the house, I'll be there. So I got to the house and I went in the house I went in to look for the bathroom, and I opened a door, and it was like a room that was just completely filled with, with weapons. Like, like, I don't know how many, a hundred guns? It's just like, holy fuck. And there were no other guns around, there's one room filled with guns. Like, but like thrown in, like they were just like, like okay, I gotta hide all the guns and put them in this one room. And I, so I went outside, I was like really shaking, so I went outside and I was sort of sitting outside when he pulled up. And he, would, he was a big guy. He was like this Marine who was like, you know, when we were living with him, just back in Vietnam, he was like, you know, a huge guy, like tattoos and like ripped. And and like, so he pulls up in the tr this truck and I'm sitting in this thing and I'm like this little skinny poet sitting on a rock, seeing this giant walking across the field going, holy fuck, this guy who's got a room full of guns, still like, a, a, you know, a head taller than me. And as we get closer, like I get bigger than him. Like suddenly as I'm standing there, like I'm bigger than him now. Like, he was just this kid. He was like 22 years old when we were together. He seemed enormous to me, but he was, you know, a regular-sized guy. He was just, you know, big as us. What, what year was that? Do you remember what year that was that you met her again? I was working at Pier 44, mm -hmm. and she waitressed there part-time. So we, we went out to dinner, and, mm -hmm. and we saw one another. And, and I remember she had the Honda. Right. Oh, the motorcycle? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought that was pretty exciting. <laughs> I, had, I had met her about, oh, geez, probably 10 years or so before. Ten, 10 years before, but you must have been just a kid then. Yeah, right? I was like, uh, oh, it's before I went to Vietnam, it was before I went in the service. So. Yeah. Nick's reunion with John led to another unexpected journey, but this time, into John's past. We ended up going to Vietnam together. In 2000, Nick and John participated in a documentary, Breathe In, Breathe Out, 
The director, Beth B, invited Vietnam vets and their children to return to the country where they had once been soldiers to document their experience of confronting the past. You know, we've both been struggling with, you know, our memories of how it was when he was in our house, uh, how it was for him being here in Vietnam the first time. Um, and there, there have been times where, you know, I've, I've flashed back to how I felt as a, as a kid uh, with him in the house, you know, living in the house with a, you know, a, a Marine who was just back in Vietnam. He, I suppressed it when, when I was with you and your mom. I didn't really think about that until I had a, a, a child of my own, and she has dark hair and looks mm -hmm. similar. With my Jennifer, their age, I, it, it, it kind of came back to me. It's, it's a you know, powerful place here. Uh, I just saw John. Um, there's a woman working over in the yard with one of the traditional hats on. And I just looked over at John, and John was uh, kneeling before her and looked like he was apologizing. Uh, and they kissed each other's hands and then hugged each other. Um, <laughs> I don't think John knew um, that uh, just found out that she was one of the women who was, who was here at uh, Milai, at this village. This is where the village was. I guess. <sighs> it was good for me to uh, just kind of uh, give thanks to being so fortunate that that I'm here and I can uh, maybe get some peace of mind. You sort of asked me to look back in these films, which is something I haven't, you know, I haven't looked at the films in a long time. I mean, a long time. It's been a long time since Nick tracked down his mother's ex-boyfriends. He's now a father, and having a child of his own has prompted him to reconsider a story one of the ex-boyfriends revealed about his mother during the interviews. You know, in, in retrospect, it might have been, out of everything that was said, it might have been the key to, like, this whole other thing that's sort of, like, 25 years later is sort of, like, what I'm working on. As for what Nick's working on all these years later, the trip to Vietnam with John, seeing his stepfather physically return to the place of his memories and find peace, that may be a model for him. And that was a really important thing. Like, I maybe couldn't have, I couldn't be looking at this stuff now without having gone to Vietnam with him. What Nick's looking at now is a memory one of his mother's ex-boyfriends corrected. Him saying that thing about the, uh, you know, about the fire. I was, I believe, six. My mother bought the house when I was either four or five. That's a little unclear. I thought it was five until just recently, and my brother thinks it was four. It was the first house my mother bought. You know, she had a young single woman bouncing around, to, you know, living nowhere. And, and she decided, like, she needed to buy a house. She bought this house, a real ruined $2,000 house. 
which even back then is sort of was not <laughs> not what houses went for. By buying a house, Nick's mother had achieved a semblance of stability for her family. And then one day, that symbol of safety and security caught on fire. My brother remembers uh, laying in bed and like that he could smell the smoke and he remembers it's it tasted good. Like he remembers it feeling like it felt good. He was breathing it in and feeling like that it was like pleasant. Uh, I remember being outside. I remember once I was outside and I don't remember if our mother came up and woke us or if she just yelled up the stairs or if we just ran out. I don't really remember. I do remember going out and running to the fire station. We ran up the stairs of the fire station yelling like our house is on fire. And there was just a guy like, or maybe a couple of guys playing cards around a table and they were just looked up and they're like, we got to ring the bell. And we're like, what, where's the bell? I'm like, right there. And we just rang the bell, and then they jumped up. But they wouldn't do anything until we rang the bell. The story Nick had been told by his mother involved raccoons. It, it all made sense, you know, the story all made sense with the raccoons knocking our grill over. Because we would watch the raccoons out the window come and raid our garbage can, like this whole little troop of like six of them. They're very coordinated. Well, we had a, we had grilled something, and then we went to bed, and the raccoons came and knocked the coals over this was Nick's memory, and this was what he shared with his mother's ex-boyfriend during the interview. When I said, well, you were, the, you were with her when the raccoons set our house on fire. And he just laughed, and he said, raccoons? Like, the raccoons didn't set your house on fire. Your mother set your house on fire. caught fire and he said that she did it to collect insurance money that she had a sort of a, an intrigue going with the insurance man who was married that she was seducing him in some way so it got the house insured for more than it was worth and her boyfriend a carpenter and he was married so if the house caught fire it would be an excuse for him to spend more time renovating the house so the money would go to him so there was this whole like sort of elaborate plan from a young woman with two kids in her mid-20s so when he told me that it just sort of went into the vault of like, oh, okay, that's what, yeah, okay, that makes sense. You know, maybe it's romanticizing like this sort of outlaw life or, or you know, getting over on the man. And I, and I never took it in deep. I could never take it in as anything beyond a story. And Nick would retell this story in his work over and over again. First poem in my first book uh, in some ether, it's called Bag of Mice. And that poem... Like, it's kind of like, that's one of the few poems I've ever written straight from a dream. You know, I just woke up and transcribed it. 
and I really didn't know what it meant. And now it's like sort of contains the essence of like all my writing. Bag of mice. I dreamt your suicide note was scrawled in pencil on a brown paper bag. And in the bag were six baby mice. The bag opened into darkness, smoldering from the top down. The mice huddled at the bottom, scurried the bag across a shorn field. I stood over it, and as the burning reached each carbon letter of what you'd written, your voice released into the night like a song, and the mice grew wilder. I've gone back and tracked it through my work, and uh, there's sort of something, a house burning, or the direct story of my mother setting a house on fire, in like kind of everything I write. I'm, I'm circling around this thing, trying to understand it. And then Nick found himself circling the physical house. We go by it every year, and I'd gone by it last year and saw the guys outside that lived there, and I sort of slowed down. They sort of, they sort of gave me like a bad look, and I gave them a bad look, and then we just, I drove away. They probably thought I was like casing it with like two children in the back seat. You know, but this year I, I knocked on the door and went into the house with her. This guy that lives in the house now, he hadn't touched the front of the house. The staircase that we ran down, my bedroom upstairs, the bathroom upstairs, the front door that we ran out, not painted. The same paint on it from 50 years ago. Nothing had been touched. Saw where the fire had been, and you know, I could see a still burnt wood. After years of circling the fire, Nick was now in its presence. What had been a story he'd told over and over again was now a reality. It suddenly it hit me like that, that story was very strange. Because I would always assume like, it didn't seem so crazy. It's like, well, we got out, we got the money, she got a better house. And then going back with my kid, I'm being like, who the fuck would set a house on fire with kids in it? You know, in, in sober terms, it's just that uh, the, the fuck it moment where you just like don't, you know, you just don't care. And you just reach that point. It's a very dangerous point to reach because, you know, damage comes from that. You know, now, like it just feels like in a deeper, uh, you know, psychological realm, it's like her first home and maybe like um, a deep discomfort with that. Suddenly having the structure and then you burn the home down. You burnt down, but you don't only burn it down, but you burnt down with your kids in it. You know, we got out okay, but we kind of just got out. You, you know, you can come back from that also. You can come back and it's kind of, it could be a, a teaching thing where you're like, okay, I'm, that's, that's a place I don't want to go or it's dangerous to go. You know, and I think my mother went in and out of it. When Nick followed his impulse to track down his mother's ex-boyfriends, he had no idea he'd discover a dark truth about her. He's no longer circling around it, but there's no easy resolution to arrive at. There's just another way to see the fire and how it shaped him. Every boyfriend uh, after the fire said, like, how much we meant to her, her kids meant to her. That, that, that's all she cared about. The guy that was with her of the fire did not say that. The line she was willing to go to woke her in some way. It, it clearly didn't, like, resolve all her issues. But, you know, my basic feeling was that I felt very loved by her. But it's probably like in the 
after the fire when I'm seven. But by, and when I'm seven, I'm out of my fucking mind. I'm like a little, you know, wild animal, you know, probably until now. <laughs> no, no, for like little, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to figure out when it ended. <laughs> Nick Flynn's latest memoir, This is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire, is available at your local bookstore. Today's episode was produced and edited by me. A big thank you to Beth B., Greg Herzenak, and our sponsor, Wink Puzzles. You'll find links to all these good people in the show notes. I've also included a link to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Please consider donating to them. Thank you all for listening. If you want to support the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Stay healthy and stay tuned for the next episode, The Flaw in the Golden Rule, with moth storyteller Ed Gavkin. Wings, you gotta have wings. You gotta have wings to fly above the fray amok. You look like. Lost and found